Hello, and welcome back to the Issacos podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman, with my co-host, Dr. Robert Marks from New York. I'm based in Fukuoka, Japan, and we are here to give you an update on the second issue of the 2021 newsletter. How are you today, Dr. Marks? Doing great, Stephen. Always great to uh, speak to you, catch up, and talk Issacos. Absolutely. Nice to, uh, nice to see you again. Unfortunately, we start this episode with some very sad news. The passing of Dr. Freddie Fu, who's an absolute legend in sports medicine, orthopedics, and, and clearly a very important Isakos member throughout the years. Yeah, I was uh, really hit hard by um, Freddie's passing. I, I actually got to know him quite well through Issacos, actually, over the years. I didn't do any training with him in Pittsburgh, but I got to know him very well. And Volker Musall, who's his successor as the head of sports medicine in, in Pittsburgh, currently leading the program, uh, spent some time with us here in New York. So it was, it's just really, really uh, tough to lose Freddie. And um, really, I think there's probably no greater ambassador of international sports medicine than Freddie coming from Hong Kong to study, you know, at, for his college in America, and then ultimately staying and becoming a leader in America and, you know, hosting people from around the world as fellows from literally every continent, always having many international fellows and taking great pride in that, uh, just also being the most gracious person, gracious host, having visited Pittsburgh two years ago for uh, a meeting he put on, you know, I experienced that. It's just, it's just a huge loss for all of us, that his contributions and uh, his memory will live on forever. Absolutely. I didn't know him nearly as well as you, but I do recall at, I believe it was probably my first or second Iscos Congress. I was having lunch by myself. They had like set meals that you'd pick up a little box and it'd be a sandwich and an apple or whatever. And I was sitting alone at a table and Freddie came over and sat with me. There's no reason for him to do that, but it just sort of showed you who he was. And we struck up a conversation and he actually had read some of my research and it really touched me that he cared enough to sit down with a non-surgeon and have a conversation when he could have been networking and doing all the things that people often do. And to me, it just spoke Incredible. to his character. Yep. So yeah, Amazing. definitely going to miss him. So yeah, rest in peace, Freddie Fu. I think uh, hard to follow up uh, from that, but we do have an episode to record. So there have been some changes, I guess, in how Isikos is doing education, especially global education. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? I think a couple of the things that have evolved in the last couple of years are obviously our, our meetings have been um, online and, and Zoom. And so I think that's enabled us to have a, a better reach really around the world. It's easier to access our content through Global Link on the Isakos website, which has an unbelievable amount of content, all kinds of stuff. History of Isakos, history of orthopedic sports medicine. And of course, current concepts, all kinds of cutting edge information, but also our content is easier to access in terms of our conferences and meetings. You could do it from the comfort of your office, your home, tune in to content that's either pre-recorded or at our uh, next meeting will be uh, live. The other thing is the journal, Jisikos, is transitioning to open access. Uh, what that means is there is availability of all the content to everyone. It's purely open. 
and there's a fee for the authors to make their research available to everyone, uh, which is the, you know, the current trend in, in publishing now. So that there, there's not a, a restriction or a limitation on who has access with a subscription, it's open to the world online. So another uh, way that the, the content of Isakos is more broadly available to everyone. That can only be a good thing as we try to fulfill our mission as uh, International Sports Medicine Society. And uh, for those of you who might be unaware, the 2021 Congress, there will be a mix of in-person events, which will be streamed live. And also there, those will be recorded so you can actually watch them. They'll be available for 30 days after the Congress. So that gives surgeons from around the world a lot of flexibility in trying to catch up on all of the content of the Congress. Often when you attend in person for a traditional Congress, you are stuck picking and choosing which sessions you want to go to with con concurrent sessions. And with this new model, you no longer have to do that as long as you can make the time in your free time to watch the sessions that are important to you. So I think that's probably a net benefit to, to the members. And the four locations of the live feeds will actually be from Cape Town, which is our original host city uh, for the what was supposed to be the 2020 uh, Congress, but also in Buenos Aires, Sydney, and San Francisco. So there's a really nice distribution across the globe of cities where live events will be hosted by different ISACOS leaders. And then uh, all of that will be available streaming for members who attend. So really interested to see how this plays out. And perhaps this will set up as a model for future Congresses. Of course, the benefit as you and I have talked about in past episodes is really around the networking potential and the opportunity to see friends and socialize and get to know people in a deep and meaningful way when you attend in person. But given that we can't do that this year, this gives us a chance to test some new ways of engagement and then communicating information to our members. So really excited to see how that plays out. Totally agree. Look forward as well. Well, moving on, we, as usual, had a number of essentially current concepts, articles in the newsletter. And as the non-surgeon, I'm going to ask you questions because I really don't understand some of these things. Even when they're things that I've studied before, I'm always learning from, from you and from the other surgeons about how these things are evolving, where our thoughts about different oh, procedures. You're very humble, but I think you uh, probably know uh, almost as much as people who actually do the surgery, but uh, I'll take your <laughs> word for it. Well, there are some procedures here that I'm relatively unfamiliar with. So the first actually is on meniscal transplantation, technical innovations and return to sports. And this is from team from both uh, Barcelona and from Porto. Could you give us a little background on, on that piece? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, meniscus transplantation is, just generally speaking, a very specific operation that's uh, indicated in uh, very rare and specific cases. However, uh, return to sport has been a, um, a challenging issue because of the, you know, I think the vascularity and healing of the meniscus is somewhat challenging. So I think it's a nice review of some of the technical challenges and issues with returning people to sports because of the load on the transplanted meniscus with sports and whether that's even a good idea. Yeah, the authors report a return to play of 77% uh, with around 68% returning to the same level at nine months. But I can't imagine the longevity is very long, especially for high impact sports. Are there specific sports you might think may be more amenable to return to sport after a meniscal transplantation? 
I think that's the, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, high impact uh, sports is probably going to shorten the life of the transplant. So that's really the, the, the big question. So would you think maybe inline sports, things like cycling might be a little oh, bit more? Of course. Yeah. Cycling, okay. uh, you know, swimming, things without, without impact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, our next current concept is from a group in Argentina, and this is surgical resolution sequence in multi-ligament knee injury. And this is actually a case report. And That's I know an you're, interesting... a, you're a big multi-leg guy, so. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting case report. And I think the, um, it's a, gr a great discussion of the way they did it in, in this case and the way they approach it. And think about it, there's certainly no right answer as opposed to, uh, with respect to, I should say, uh, which ligaments to fix first when you're fixing, you know, more than one ligament, uh, the sequence, you know, I, I do it, you know, maybe a little different than this. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to think through the best way to do it in each particular case, because each case is a little different. These injuries aren't especially common. You know, I enjoyed uh, reading their, their approach to um, how they thought through the order of fixation in, in this case and in multi-ligament injuries in general. Very good. Something I hope I never need is uh, <laughs> multi-lig repair. But if I do, I know Absolutely. who I'm coming to. <laughs> and our, our next current concept is from right here in Japan. This is osteochondritis desiccans of the capitellum or OCD of the capitellum. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, I mean, also a, a fairly um, relatively uncommon uh, problem. But interestingly, uh, Japan being uh, such a baseball-loving nation, they do see a fair amount of it in their uh, young pitchers, something that uh, we do see in, in young throwers. And so Japan has uh, a good amount of that, a good amount of young throwers and a good amount of OCD of the capitellum, of course. So interesting uh, approach, interesting thoughts, and really something that most people don't have a, a ton of experience with, but definitely can be a very challenging problem, especially in a young person if it is a big lesion. It was surprising to see that they did some epidemiologic research in which they found that 2% of 10 to 12-year-old baseball players had OCD lesions, and it rose to 3.5% by, by high school. So those, those seem like pretty significant numbers in my mind. Yeah, well, being a uh, baseball injury epidemiologist, as you are, or at least you were at one time, maybe they uh, could be doing something better with respect to uh, pitch counts, throwing numbers, perhaps some exercises. It's interesting you mentioned that because I have talked to some of my Japanese orthopedic colleagues and when I talk to, talk to them about pitch limits, they're confused by the concept. So maybe that's something we can still uh, work on here in Japan. It's, uh, yeah, I think there's some definitely uh, cultural differences with respect to the approach to throwing and pain and surgery with respect to uh, Japan and, and North America, for sure. Yeah, and it's two of the bigger baseball playing countries, I guess. It's interesting that those uh, differences continue to exist. Our next current concept is glenoid tract decision-making process in patients with antero-inferior instability with bipolar bone loss. And I'm just going to start out by saying, I'm not even sure what part of the anatomy this is referring to. So if you could explain this to me as if I'm a child, that would be really helpful. <laughs> well, uh, I think you know, bone loss is, and the glenoid, which is the socket, uh, as you know, there's, you can get bone loss with recurrent instability. It sort of wears out. You could also get it on the humeral head. And so combined, it makes the shoulder more unstable. This is really something that 
was first really brought to my attention, you know, almost 20 years ago at Issacos when uh, De Beer and Burkhart uh, started uh, talking about it, sort of a combination from the United States and South Africa, sort of a typical sort of Issacos international uh, research collaboration, clinical collaboration. And uh, that's when I first, you know, I, we, we knew about bone loss, but that, that their work really kind of brought it, I think, to the to the forefront of shoulder surgery. And so people are now uh, looking at ways to uh, calculate uh, whether a lesion is on track or off track and further delving into this issue of bone loss and how you can really determine whether soft tissue procedure is sufficient or whether a bony procedure is required in order to uh, achieve a better stability at surgery. Okay, so then uh, our final current concept is actually guideline to define indications for anterolateral ligament reconstruction during ACL surgery again, out of Argentina. What are your thoughts about these uh, criteria and guidelines that are being presented? Uh, you know, I, I presented? think, um, yeah, they, they call it anterolateral ligament. Uh, not, to, I mean, this, this, we, like for all of these articles, we could go on into, you know, great depth and detail for a long time, but uh, suffice it to say that, um, you know, anterolateral surgery at the time of ACL has become a very hot topic internationally. And I think, again, Issacos is a, a sort of a bridge because this has been done in, in Europe, in uh, France, Italy, Belgium for, for decades, and they have long, long-term follow-up. And it's, uh, you know, uh, 20 years later, sort of uh, becoming something that we're doing in, in North America sort of more routinely, although it was done uh, 40 years ago, uh, it wasn't really done the same way, and it, it um, sort of fell out of favor in North America, although it didn't in Europe. So I think we're now re-looking at anterolateral surgery, whether you call it, want to call it ALL or LET, we don't want to you know, get too far into the weeds, but uh, it's a nice review of some, some thoughts about when, when it's indicated. Well, that wraps up our current concepts, and a couple of other things I think we should mention before we finish up is there's a nice section on women in research, really encouraging female participation in Issacos and in research and the opportunities that are, are available and, and what challenges the orthopedic community faces with regard to equity for female surgeons. So I thought that was an interesting piece. And then finally, we have a, just to let people know, we've got a brand new Giants in Orthopedic Sports Medicine coming out, and that's with Dr. David Dandy who was interviewed recently, and that should be available very soon. I think the, um, both of those are, are, are really interesting. I think Issacos is trying to uh, in, increase uh, female participation, as uh, obviously orthopedics is a male-dominated specialty, or has been, uh, but we're trying to make some inroads there in, 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 with respect to female participation and diversity in general from uh, across the world and all, uh, diversity in every way uh, possible. Uh, and hopefully uh, in the future, there will be more uh, diversity across uh, gender and every other kind of diversity with respect to our giants. But obviously that will uh, take some time. Well, thank you much, very much for, sorry, one more. Thank you very much for joining me uh, for this episode of the Issacos podcast. As always, it's very nice to chat with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Marks in New York, and we will be back in your podcast feed soon with a new episode. Stephen, always a pleasure to catch up and, and look forward to uh, hopefully uh, recording one of these in person one time. That would be great. Really nice to, to speak with you and, and safety and good health to all of our Issacos members. Thank you. Definitely.